Rachel. This is Deconstructing Disney. To all who come to this happy podcast, welcome. 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 We are so glad to have you back for our ninth episode, during which we will be discussing Cinderella, Cinderella. Soup to shore. That's not the same song. Nope, nope. Or the same movie, even. But I loved it. You just did an impromptu Disney medley, and it was great. Yes, they fit together really well. It's great because after hearing that song, I will be amazed if I ever have any other song stuck in my head ever again because it's just so in there. Yeah. So, yes, we are talking about not Beauty and the Beast, but the 1950 Disney animated film, Cinderella. Yay. Back to our princesses. Right. Our second princess. Mm -hmm. uh, The second one only since Snow White, the very first movie. So I didn't realize this. I thought Sleeping Beauty was earlier on. I totally did, too. Yeah. And so... As we've been going through these chronologically, I've been like, where's the next princess movie? Uh, (laughs) But we finally made it. Yep. So most people are probably familiar with, if not the Disney film Cinderella, the story in general of Cinderella. It's a very famous fairy tale. But the movie opens like several other Disney films we've seen, which is with a live action storybook opening. And then we kind of move into the storybook. So it really sets the scene from the beginning that this is a fairy tale once upon a time. So we dive in and we learn that Cinderella's father has married Lady Tremaine, who has two daughters about Cinderella's age. Cinderella's father has chosen a woman of good family for his mm-hmm. second wife. Shortly thereafter, Cinderella's father dies, and Cinderella then is forced into servitude to her stepmother and her stepsisters, who are named Anastasia and Drizella, which, what mm-hmm. a great name. Drizella. So Cinderella, we see her as a a young adult or maybe a late adolescent waking up to the tolling of the castle bells and she sings, a dream is a wish your heart makes. And it's a lovely song. However, it's actually the second song in the movie because during the credits, there's this whole song mm-hmm. that I had no memory of and me either couldn't repeat any part of it back to you now because it was so forgettable. Uh, it's the Cinderella song. Okay. And the one line that really stood out to me is what it starts with Cinderella, you're as lovely as your name. <laughs> and it's like, I mean, there's a lot more to this, but the initial reaction is like, one, has anyone else ever had this name? Why right. is this name considered beautiful? It's just like, because it is because of the story, because what the story is trying to do, but going to talk more <laughs> about the idea of like, the name Cinderella isn't supposed to be beautiful. Like, that's kind of part of the point. But Disney flipping the script. Yeah. Yeah, because we'll talk about the origin of the Cinderella story, but Cinder refers mm-hmm. to 
ashes in the fire because she's a servant. So Mm -hmm. it's not even clear whether Cinderella is actually her given name or not. But it's certainly the name that she has now that she's a servant. She is awoken and she's dressing with the help of multiple little critters, mice and birds help her prepare for her day. And then she goes down to make breakfast and take that into her sleeping stepmother and stepsisters. Shortly thereafter, they learn that there is going to be a ball at the castle. And all the eligible maidens in the land are invited. We see this first in a scene at the castle with the king and the Grand Duke, who's like his henchman, I guess, <laughs> that he berates constantly. And the king really wants grandchildren. So his son, the prince, is coming back into town, so he's going to throw this ball. So Anastasia and Drizella are super pumped about this ball, mm-hmm. as is Cinderella. And Lady Tremaine tells Cinderella that she can go to the ball only if she, A, has something suitable to wear, and B, if she gets all her chores done. Mm -hmm. So, naturally, Lady Tremaine and Anastasia and Drizella load Cinderella up with so many chores that she couldn't possibly finish them all in time and create some sort of dress for her to go to the ball but her mice friends sew together a beautiful ball gown for her so pretty so pretty (laughs) and they sing the work song uh, about helping Cinderella and so Cinderella you know this is a, a lovely surprise but when she comes downstairs wearing this dress that has been made from scraps of her stepsister's cast off clothing They immediately tear the dress to shreds saying, oh, those are my beads. That's my sash. How dare you? And so Cinderella's dress is then in tatters. She can't go to the ball now. She runs sobbing into a garden Mm -hmm. where her fairy godmother appears. Out of nowhere. Out of nowhere, (laughs) apropos of not much. Does not introduce herself. (laughs) Right. But somehow there's this sense that Cinderella knows that she's her fairy godmother or I think she like asks like oh you must be my fairy godmother it's like as though that's a thing that she she would expect to happen right also the ridiculousness of like Cinderella is crying with her arms and head on the bench right and then the fairy godmother appears (laughs) underneath Cinderella's arms like between her and the bench. And yes. She doesn't notice at first or react to like this human is now underneath you. <laughs> I noticed that too. It's a very weird moment. I was like, why would they choose to animate it that way? Because it looks so weird. Mm-hmm. I assume it's the like motherliness just of the position. But yeah. like they did not think about a magical fairy lady just like appearing yeah. underneath Cinderella at all. I the, don't think. the physics of it feel very no. off. But the fairy godmother uses a magic spell. She sings the song Bippity Boppity Boo, and she turns a pumpkin into a carriage. She turns Cinderella's mice friends into horses. She turns a horse (laughs) into the, uh, what's it called? 
The driver. The driver. Right? Thank you. Yep. If I, there's maybe a more specific name. He drives the carriage. <laughs> she turns the horse into the driver. So all of that doesn't really make sense because shouldn't the horse be a horse? But never mind. <laughs> she turns the dog into the footman. And then she almost forgets. But Cinderella reminds her she needs new clothing as well. And the fairy godmother grants her wish by dressing Cinderella in this gorgeous sparkling gown complete with a 90s style black choker around her neck. <laughs> Her. Ahead of its time. <laughs> right. <laughs> uh, she also has these beautiful glass slippers on her feet. And the fairy godmother warns Cinderella that the spell will be broken at midnight. So all of this will turn back into its original form. So you have to basically leave the ball by midnight. So Cinderella gets to the ball we see the scene of the prince being introduced to all the eligible maidens. He's yawning, not impressed. <laughs> and then from across the room, he sees Cinderella, who's sort of wandering in, looking around like she doesn't know what's going on. And then she and the prince just start dancing. They sing, This is Love, which is to say their actors are singing it. We don't actually see them singing it in mm -hmm. the scene compared to some of the other songs in the movie. So they have presumably fallen in love at this point. They don't know each other's names, but this <laughs> is true love. And then the, st the clock starts signaling midnight. So Cinderella has to rush off and... Sure enough, everything turns back into its normal way, but she leaves one of her glass slippers behind. So the king instructs the Grand Duke to go door to door and try that slipper on the foot of every eligible maiden in the land until they find the one whom it fits. And that will be right. the wife of the prince. Because you couldn't possibly like look for someone who looks like Cinderella. Impossible. No. Right. Well, and they probably wouldn't recognize her in her rags anyway. Right. right. <laughs> no one's looking at the face here. Right. So Lady Tremaine, back at their chateau, she realizes that Cinderella must be the one. So she locks Cinderella in her room in the high tower so that Cinderella won't be able to try on the slipper when the Grand Duke arrives. And there's a just very anxiety-provoking sequence during which the mice are frantically trying <laughs> to get the key from Lady Tremaine's pocket so they can unlock the door so that Cinderella can escape and try on the slipper. The mice encounter Lucifer, Lady Tremaine's cat, who traps the key under a dish and then they have to go wake up Bruno the dog so Bruno can chase Lucifer away so they can get the key so they can unlock the door and I like could barely watch it because I was so anxious the whole time but of course Cinderella just in time unlocks the door rushes down the stairs tries on the slipper well actually she doesn't Right. The Grand Duke is walking over and Lady Tremaine trips him so that he drops the slipper and it shatters. However, mm -hmm. Cinderella pulls out the other slipper and says, well, you know, I have the other one from the pair. So then it's clear that it was her slipper and the one she has fits her feet, obviously, cut <laughs> to her wedding to the prince. They're 
rushing down the stairs after their wedding and get into a carriage and live happily ever after. Huzzah. Huzzah. They did it. They did it. (laughs) So I was really looking forward to watching this movie. I'm a sucker for a Disney princess movie. (laughs) I emphasized how much anxiety I had during the ending scene. And what I hadn't remembered is that so much of the movie is actually the animals, the Mm -hmm. mice running from Lucifer, the cat that happens like three or four times at, you know, various points that happens when they're trying to get food in the morning. It happens when they're trying to steal scraps to make Cinderella's dress. That takes up more time in the movie than the actual human interactions. Yep, because Cinderella is super passive. (laughs) So, like, she's not going to have action sequences. Yeah. Um, So they had to get the animals to do it instead. Exactly, exactly. And, in fact, there is a study done, and I talked about the same study when we were discussing Snow White. This study, which is by England... Descartes and Collier Meek. Oh, yeah, I remember them. Yeah. (laughs) They did a study in 2011, and they tracked the display of feminine and masculine traits across Disney movies of both princesses and princes. And Cinderella demonstrated the most submissiveness of any character in any film that they looked at. Oh, interesting. These researchers write, quote, in Cinderella, the princess did domestic work as an act of submission. She accepted without complaint the hard labor her stepmother assigned and always sang and smiled pleasantly while working, end quote. I think that's a slight oversimplification, but sure. Sure. She is very submissive. She, I like one of my early thoughts in the film was that she's slightly sassier than I remembered her being. Yeah. It's not much, obviously. (laughs) Setting the bar very low. But, like, even the waking up at the end of um, A Dream is What Your Heart Makes when she, like, reprimands the clock for waking her up and trying to control her and saying that, like, there's one thing no one can control my dreams. Just, like, Mm. that act of being, like, you old clock, like, you kill joy, saying anything mean to anyone, even an inanimate clock, I think kind of sets the stage for her to push back a little bit more than at least Snow White. Yes. But, I mean, she does do very little to get herself out of the situation. Right. But I think you're right that there are, like, smaller acts of defiance or at least attitudinal defiance. You know, she's a little bit snotty, if you will. Like, when talking with her animal companions, she mocks the music lesson that her mm-hmm. stepsisters yeah. are engaged in. So it's like a little bit catty. So, yeah. yeah. She advocates for going to the ball when it's right. clear that she's not being thought of when her stepmother and stepsisters are talking about it. She's right. like, ah, I want to go too. Yeah. And then compl- like is grateful that she's even given the chance. But. Yeah, she does She does a little bit to change her situation. Yeah, so there's, you know, there's a little bit of assertiveness at certain mm-hmm. moments, but not enough to change her overarching situation without some serious intervention from other actors. Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely. I at one point thought to myself, 
is Jacques the hero of this story? <laughs> Jacques the mouse. Yeah. A mouse for the people. He's like the most active, you know, he helps everybody. He's the one who really, he gets her the key. Yeah. Figures out the dress. He stops the cat. He's great. <laughs> right. Right. <laughs> so was there anything else about your memories of viewing this in the past versus your current viewing experience? I fully forgot the king and the grand duke. Yeah. Like, no memory of them whatsoever being in this film. I, like, once I was seeing the scenes, they were starting to come back to me. Mm -hmm. But, yeah, that did not did not stick in my brain. Again, this is a film I have not seen for a really long time, but most of it was still in my brain. I remembered the majority of, like, the scenes once they got going. I probably didn't remember the kitchen scene with the mice and Lucifer Mm. In the beginning, when, like, she's feeding the farm animals in the morning. Like, mm -hmm. I didn't remember that sort of thing. But the rest of it mostly came back, but not the King and the Grand Duke. Clearly, I did not care about them <laughs> at all. <laughs> yeah, they really show up a lot. They're, like, a subplot unto themselves. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. It's interesting that, like, we need all these subplots to, like, make the movie more complex. Because Cinderella's straight, like love story that just kind of happens to work out like not a lot happens in it mm -hmm. so it's all beefed up by humor on like either side humor and manufactured dramatic tension yes and various ways of holding up the like patriarchal domestication of like this world yeah yeah Which we'll talk about a bunch <laughs> so the cinderella story which Again, if that synopsis was boring, that's probably because you're very familiar with this story. It's one of the most prevalent stories in folklore across culture and across time. The earliest version of a Cinderella-like tale uh, is actually traced back to ancient Greece. And the story of Rodopis, a Greek courtesan who's sought out for marriage by an Egyptian king after an eagle drops one of Rodopis's sandals in the king's lap. And it's such a beautiful sandal that the king has to find who it belongs to. And that story was first recorded by Greek geographer Strabo around 7 BC. So wow. we're going back a ways yeah. Another story that is credited as really giving a lot of plot points to some of the later versions that we're more familiar with is a Chinese folktale, the story of Ye Zhen. And that appears in the book Miscellaneous Morsels from Yu Yang, Yu Yang being a region of China. So this is a book of folklore from that area. And that was written by Duan Chengxi circa 850 BC. And it's in this story that we see a young woman being abused by a stepmother and a half sister. We see a version of a fairy godmother in that Ye Zhan's deceased mother is reincarnated as a fish who helps her dress for a festival. Hmm. Ye Zhan also has golden shoes, one of which she leaves behind to be found by the king later. So a lot of elements that we see 
popping up in later versions, including the version that is most frequently cited as being kind of the first Cinderella story, even though clearly it wasn't. And that is the fairy tale by Charles Perrault. He was a French author and he wrote the popular version Cinderella or The Little Glass Slipper in 1697. And it's said that Disney most likely drew inspiration from this version of Cinderella because Perrault's version introduces the fairy godmother, the use of a pumpkin, and slippers that are made of glass rather than gold or some sort of other material. Right. I had assumed that Cinderella was a Grimm's fairy tale, but the Grimm's version, which is also called Aschenputtel in German, didn't show up until their 1812 publication of children's and household tales. So the Peralt version predates the Grimm version and, as I said, has a closer alignment to the motifs we see in the Disney film. Yeah. Wow, it's so much older than I would have ever guessed. If someone asked me out of nowhere to be like, when do you think this story was first written? Like, B.C.? No way. Right? That's so interesting. Especially that, like, the slipper, the shoe, whatever it is, is, like, so consistent. Yeah. It's so unique that it really does link the stories very effectively, and you can't really argue with those really old sources. That's so interesting. It's especially interesting to consider what it is about this story that is so Mm. compelling and has been so compelling across time and cultural context. Is it this idea of getting your due, justice, overcoming adversity through goodness, lots of themes that we could point to as possibly being appealing to various diverse audiences. Yeah. And there's certainly been innumerable adaptations in all sorts of forms, ballets, musicals, operas, books, films, television series. So the Disney animated film is but one adaptation, arguably one of the more famous ones, but again, only one among tons and tons of adaptations most recently a musical by andrew lloyd weber that was scheduled to open in 2020 whoa yeah really really it was supposed to open in in london's west end but was delayed because of the pandemic ah yeah wow i wonder like i so often think about especially now like what would disney think about you know so many things about his company and what it's come to be but Mm. like I I think he'd be thrilled obviously but the idea that like you took a super old like well-known ish I guess story and like yours became the prominent like interpretation when people say the word Cinderella at least in like America I assume that that stretches probably to much of Europe as well. I'm not really sure beyond that. But, like, well, that's crazy how many things he got to claim ownership over. Mm-hmm. And even though they're from other cultures and have so many different interpretations and just, like, movies, <laughs> like, <laughs> capitalism really, really got it. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. It speaks to the pervasiveness of the Disney brand, certainly. Yeah, definitely. So 
what can you tell us about the making of Disney Cinderella? Yeah, this is kind of a pretty simple story, I think, of how this one was made because a lot of the drama has kind of already happened, mm. which is nice where we're past World War II, we're past the animator strike, though, you know, like they're not past it, in like necessarily who they're working with and whatnot, but the strike is no longer going on and financials are recovering thanks to the package films and basically taking it easy and doing the simple money-making things for most of a decade. Yeah. So Cinderella was initially planned as a Silly Symphony short uh, in 1933. Hmm. So like it had been around and in Disney's brain for a while, but they wanted to expand the story as they seemingly always do with like the stories that deserve it. And as they created more humorous elements and expanded the emotional appeal it became too complex for a short, so they decided mm. it had to be a feature. Mm-hmm. They had a bunch of other features that they were getting ready to make, so it sat on the back burner for a little bit. Mm. And it also went through a bunch of treatments, all starting in 1938. Mm. So still, like, really early in the, like, Disney feature film timeline. Yeah, I mean, that's 12 years before it was actually released. Mm-hmm. And only a year after Snow White came out, so, like, they were ready... To keep doing princesses. Yeah. But they just couldn't yet. So when you say it went through multiple treatments, what do you mean by treatments? Mm-hmm. Uh, so like every two years, maybe a little bit longer sometimes, Disney would like assign a different group of people to mm. work on this film and to try and draw up a script and do like character stuff and reinterpret it. And it wasn't working or wasn't big enough or was too expensive, like Mm -hmm. when it got too big and they were having their money problems. And Disney didn't need, like it wasn't supposed to be the second movie or the third movie. It was just this thing in the background. Mm. And until they had it right, Disney wasn't ready to put it out. They had other things that they were either farther in production in or had more faith in. So yeah, it got written like five different times over the course of 12 years before it actually had its final script and the style of it, let's say, mm-hmm. of like how docile is Cinderella going to be was like a genuine thing that they talked about as they were developing the idea. Hmm. So originally on that note, Cinderella was pretty much completely passive and docile, hmm. a lot like Snow White. Yeah. And then Maurice Raff, who was an uncredited writer on the film, wanted Cinderella to be more rebellious. Wow. And I actually have a really interesting quote from him where he was talking about this. He said, My thinking was you can't have somebody who comes in and changes everything for you. You can't be delivered it on a platter. You've got to earn it. So in my version, the fairy godmother said, It's okay till midnight, but from then on it's up to you. I made her earn it. And what she had to do to achieve it was to rebel against her stepmother and stepsisters to stop being a slave in her own home. So I had a scene where they're ordering her around and she throws the stuff back at them. She revolts, so they lock her up in the attic. But I don't think anyone took my idea very seriously. <laughs> yeah, I'm I'm picturing Cinderella throwing things back. No, she like glazes over and kind of hands them back their stuff, right? Yeah. Yeah. Yes, exactly. So oh, that's funny. They took some of it because she isn't quite as docile as was originally planned. Yeah. But not all of Raph's ideas. 
But that was also for other reasons, because Raph was originally hired by Disney to work on Song of the South because he was Jewish. He was a, quote, radical, and he had expressed fears over the film being to Uncle Tomish. (laughs) So to cover his butt, Disney hired this guy who was critical of the idea to work on the film. Oh, well, that worked out super well, didn't it? Mm-hmm. <laughs> Definitely solved all the problems with Song of the South. Yep. Apparently, Raph worked on Song of the South for about seven weeks before he got <gasps> in a fight with one of the other Song of the South writers, Dalton Raymond, and was reassigned to Cinderella. Oh, my goodness. Wow. Wow. <laughs> he is still like part of the Song of the South production. He isn't credited on Cinderella, hmm. but he became a part of both of them. Oh, interesting. So they did yeah. credit him. So they used his name to show that they were doing legitimate work. Yep. Yeah. On Song of the South. Right. Yep. Yeah. yeah. Interesting. He was not credited on Cinderella for those reasons, but also because he was blacklisted in 1947 for his connection to the Communist Party. Wow. <laughs> Which wow. he was a communist. Like he, he said that he was a communist. Right. But... We got bigger problems with that (laughs) (laughs) than we can talk about right now. Certainly. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Okay. So then returning back to Disney after they had produced the package films of the quote lost years, Disney had finally recouped enough financial losses that he thought it was time that he could return to feature films and they would make up the rest of their money. And by like recouped financial losses, I mean their bank debt had decreased to three million from over four million. Oh god! <laughs> so still really in debt, still in the red, but like moving towards the black. Right. <laughs> but they were finally feeling comfortable with investing their money in something bigger. And Disney, Disney wanted to make feature films. Like yeah. he, he didn't want to be in this weird limbo making films for other people or only making shorts. So he was excited to get back to a feature film and they had three options in 1947 because Cinderella, Alice in Wonderland and Peter Pan were all in development at the mm, time. Mm-hmm. So they, it was kind of going to be a race to see which one was going to win out, particularly between Cinderella and Alice in Wonderland because they were farther along. But Disney chose Cinderella because it was similar to Snow White and he was hoping it would appeal to people for like its classics, like successful Disney fairy tale feel much like Snow White, which was the last thing that had been a really big success. Mm -hmm. So trying to stick to their roots, I bet particularly because he had gotten so much criticism over the last decade for Mm. not doing classic Disney things, Mm -hmm. which is kind of crazy to think about that like classic Disney already existed after only being around for like a decade. Yeah, that was established as a norm already. Wow. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So they went with Cinderella, and it was released on February 15th, 1950, and it was a huge hit. Woohoo! The film earned $8 million in gross rentals. Wow. And it was the most successful film for Disney since Snow White, and it made that splash that Walt was looking for. It allowed them to recoup their losses and to pursue more animated films, which she was very excited about. Yeah. And bigger projects like establishing their own distribution company, Mm. beginning television production, and working towards Walt's theme park dreams. Uh Which, you know, five short years later, Disneyland would open. So, like, they needed that cash to make that happen, and it was 
kind of an idea at this point. It was something Walt knew he wanted. Construction wouldn't even start for another three years. But like, interesting that Cinderella was the moment where Walt was like, I can finally do this. Yeah. Which is crazy to think about. Like, you finally have a success after a decade of like, eh, like right. you're doing okay. You're kind <laughs> of in debt, but like people know you exist and they like your movies most of the time. You're going to open a theme park? Like something like this has never been done. But that's Disney for you. you yeah. Know? <laughs> Visionary. Yeah. Certainly. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So it was a critical success as well. One review in the Chicago Tribune said, The film not only is handsome with imaginative art and glowing colors to bedeck the old fairy tale, but it also is told in a gentle fashion without the lurid villains, which sometimes give little lots nightmares. (laughs) It is enhanced by the sudden piquant touches of humor and the music, which will appeal to old and young. So people liked it, but there was a little bit of criticism of Cinderella's lack of personality. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So variety claimed that the film found more success in projecting the lower animals than its central character, Cinderella, who is colorless, doll-faced, as is Prince Charming. Yeah. Yeah, they're pretty vanilla. (laughs) Yeah, they don't have a lot going on. Makes it easier, I think, to, like, project yourself onto them and your own personality, perhaps. Okay. Anyone could be Cinderella. (laughs) Right. I mean, in this world where everyone is white and blonde. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Right. Right. (laughs) And to round it out, the film also received three... Academy Award nominations for Best Sound, Best Music Slash Scoring of a Musical Picture, and Best Original Song for Bippity Boppity Boo. Oh, interesting that Bippity Boppity Boo would be the choice. Yeah, I assumed it would have been A Dream is What Your Heart Makes. Yeah, or even This is Love. This is Love is a beautiful song. Yeah, I mean, they hum half of it, but it's still a great song. (laughs) I like it. (laughs) That's funny. (laughs) Well, should we dive into some of our themes? Yeah, let's do it. We got stuff to talk about. I want to talk about the mice. Yeah, I mean, who doesn't? (laughs) Who doesn't? And... And like we said, the mice are a huge part of this movie. They get more screen time than Cinderella gets. So they are just a set of characters unto themselves, specifically Jacques and Octavius, nickname Gus. Mm -hmm. Totally forgot that Gus Gus, his full name given to him by Cinderella was Octavius. (laughs) Mm -hmm. So epic. (laughs) <laughs> so what stood out to you if anything about the relationship between Cinderella and the mice I mean I think the first thing I guess this goes back to things I'd forgotten mm-hmm. but one of the first things that like shocked me I guess of the film is the trap that Gus gets stuck in Oh, because I didn't remember that at all I didn't remember that Gus was not like a member of this community mm-hmm. or whatever before the film it's I don't even know what it's a trap for it's very big (laughs) he has plenty of room so I feel like it's not made for mice it's not meant to kill him it's like a humane trap who put this trap out Cinderella is this how she gets all her mice (laughs) right I did not think about that until this very second but maybe yeah 
Wild. And interesting that you would allude to Cinderella getting them, like acquiring them as yes. though she has ownership. Because mm-hmm. the mice really do take a subservient role, which felt ironic to me because we're supposed to see this injustice in Cinderella's subservience to her stepmother and stepsisters. And yet the animals have a parallel relationship with Cinderella to the extent that they're actually helping her get dressed in the mm-hmm. way that a servant would help their their master get dressed in the morning. Mm-hmm. Yep. That just really struck me and was something that I didn't remember. Of course, the mice are portrayed as having a really a lot of benevolence. You know, they really love Cinderella. There's that whole song where they feel sad that she might not get to go to the ball. So they resolve to make the dress for her. And they're really excited and and joyful about that. Mm -hmm. But I really think it's supposed to be clear that they are lesser beings. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, Just like this, her room is like its (laughs) own realm Mm. that Cinderella is in charge of. Like she is the, the head of the tower or whatever. And it's separate from the rest of her household in this world that she is fitting herself into. Mm hmm. But We both read an article by Naomi Wood called Domesticating Dreams in Walt Disney's Cinderella. Mm -hmm. And she makes this really interesting argument about Cinderella as domesticator, which we are extrapolating and expanding also to like Cinderella as colonizer. Yeah. In the way that she creates this space that she has control over and fitting these animals these lesser quote beings into a world that has made her subservient to it in the same way that she serves that world yep and she like she captures potentially if this is her trap (laughs) she (laughs) catches these mice and like brings them into the world they like meet a person who's already a part of this world and so gus meets jacques And Jacques says, like, don't worry, it's okay. Cinderella's so nice. She takes care of us. It's going to be all right. And then Gus meets the, like, the domesticator, the colonizer in Cinderella, who is then kind and gives him clothes, gives him a new name, like, incorporates him into her system, and then, you know, brings him upstairs to this world where he can meet all the other creatures that are acting the same way and like fit in now and be happy versus like what was his wild life like before that maybe it was less safe but maybe he had more freedom and didn't have to go get keys to free this lady from her attic room or serve her in other ways another indication that the mice have been acculturated is the weird mouse dialect they speak in yeah (laughs) Uh, yeah the in the article you were just mentioning wood writes quote the mice speak in a high-pitched pigeon suitable to their status as colonized subjects of cinderella's benevolent reign Mm. end quote the one that was my favorite is one of their filler terms which is zook zook (laughs) zook zook yeah like what does that even mean (laughs) It's so cute. My only frame of reference for Zook Zook is that it sounds kind of like Zug Zug, which is 
I think train or something in German because that's what Ticket to Ride is called right. in German. I know. That's my only favorite frame of reference, too. <laughs> so I was really fascinated by that dialect the way I am about weird points in all of these movies. So I went down one of my rabbit holes into the dialects that were used in blackface minstrelsy to depict black slaves. And just, it seemed like there might be a parallel there Mm -hmm. with the idea of like colonized subjects, slaves, and we know that they are lesser than because they don't speak English the mm-hmm. same way that the main characters do. They speak it with this dialect. And in fact, esteemed scholar in the field of African-American studies, Nathan Huggins has written extensively on this subject, including this quote, the minstrels dialect, so blackface performers in minstrelsy, whatever its relationship to true Negro speech was coarse, clumsy, ignorant, and stood at the opposite pole from the soft tones and grace of what was considered cultivated speech. Mm. And I think we totally see that dichotomy between Cinderella's soft tones, her beautiful singing voice, and the more jarring high-pitched dialect that the mice are using. Yeah, definitely. It's definitely made to make them seem lesser, like, they couldn't fully learn English in their process of like being moved into this world, this society or whatever. Yeah. Also made to make them funnier, mm-hmm. to make them cuter, like all of these things that make them like small and squishy and adorable are also <laughs> like these things that take away if it were humans, their humanity or like or their power, right? Yeah. If something small mm-hmm. and squishy and adorable it's not very powerful, typically. Yeah, or threatening, or yeah. Right. Mm-hmm. Definitely. So you mentioned how Cinderella gives Gus clothes. Mm-hmm. And that's a really key moment, I think, in in that like civilizing or colonizing process. But it also brings us to one of the major themes, which is gender roles. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> the, the animals... I think really make the gender roles even more apparent than perhaps the humans do. And maybe that's just because we're used to seeing it on people. When you stick it on like mice and birds, it becomes that much more absurd Uh and like outside of the ordinary. (laughs) Where like the initial thing is that like you see the birds arriving with the scarves tied on their heads to indicate that they're women. (laughs) Birds don't wear scarves. (laughs) Right. Yeah, I was reflecting on how the anthropomorphizing as of animals has varied across Disney films because mm. these animals are much more like Dumbo, where we see like Mrs. Mm. Jumbo wearing a little bonnet versus the animals in something like Bambi or even Snow White, where they're not clothed, they don't speak extensively, or at least they don't speak with humans, interacting with Mm -hmm. humans. So Disney is really running the spectrum of anthropomorphizing depending on what suits, I guess, the story of a specific film. Yeah. Or maybe maybe it was without, like, changing the anthropomorphization (laughs) 
is that a word? Let's uh, say it is. Sure. Of the animals where like in Bambi, you know, one of my complaints is the female rabbit and that they basically make it look like she's wearing like eyeshadow. Yeah. And we've talked about like eyelashes of female characters <laughs> being much longer. Bambi's kind of the exception because all of them are adorable and therefore need long eyelashes. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but those have been the kind of ways we've seen gender and you don't see that in this film Mm -hmm. it's purely through I guess like the sound of the voice Mm -hmm. because they are speaking roles and it's through clothing and this like outward identifying but also things that had to be given to them for them to show this gender so how did these mice feel before they came to live with Cinderella or like, are there generations? Like, I want to know the story of the Cinderella mice and how they got in this situation. Uh, yeah. I need like a red wall epic to just yes. detail that whole process. Oh my gosh. That would be so cool. <laughs> uh, so. Oh, we got to talk about actually Gus receiving his clothes and like the process of that. Yes, we do. Because so. Jacques comes to Cinderella in the morning and like is all worked up about something and says that there's a a new mouse, a visitor has come and Cinderella's like, oh, we must, we must greet them. We must clothe them and pulls out a dress. And she says like, oh, get her a dress. And then Jacques (laughs) starts cracking up and he's like, no, 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 he, he. And Cinderella says, oh, that does make a difference. Right. (laughs) And puts the dress away and pulls out like a (laughs) T-shirt. And it was just so like it felt if that scene existed in modern film, it felt so self-reflective in the way that like the camera is full on her face and she says it so slowly. It almost feels like a joke. Right. But it's not like it's completely genuine and it feels so ridiculous that like the gender should make a difference to what clothes she brings down to this mouse it's a mouse like they don't wear dresses anyway (laughs) right right (laughs) yeah and then the moment of Gus receiving his clothes too he's clearly never worn clothes before he's like whoa what are these shoes I have on my feet Mm -hmm. he's probably wondering why he doesn't have pants because none (laughs) of the mice have pants yeah and then like this is a separate theme yeah but the fact that the shirt is like too small on him initially because he's this like fat chubby little mouse and how that's like the first gag that Gus gets Mm -hmm. is this like fat phobic jokiness and that becomes the source of a lot of his comic like role in this film Mm -hmm. and comes up throughout of him like not being as intelligent, like doesn't read situations as well, and is also the fat character. He doesn't have self-control. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Not in just in general, not being as smart, it seems. So yeah, that comes up real early and in line with how Disney has shown fat characters up until now. Yeah. That's a pretty consistent theme across films, unfortunately. Yeah. yeah. The one that sticks out to me, and this is a film that I happen to remember really well from seeing this as a child, is when they're in the kitchen collecting what I guess are like corn kernels or feed, chicken feed to eat in the beginning. Oh, I thought it was cheese. Okay. Well, here's the thing. I did too, because <laughs> it looks like cheese. 
But, like, she wouldn't be sprinkling little pieces of cheese out to the chickens. I did think that was weird. (laughs) (laughs) But that's what I was just going to say. I was like, he has this giant stack of cheese, which, like, I think is why I remembered it, because I love cheese. And I was like, that looks awesome. (laughs) And they're mice. Like, I don't think that's that much of a reach until you realize, like, it's from the chickens. Yeah. Outside. It's the same feed that, yeah, she's serving the chicken. So most of the mice pick up like two little pieces of cheese slash chicken feed. But Gus gets like 10, a whole Mm -hmm. stack that he can barely carry. And then it's this whole gag where he there's one that has been dropped and he tries to fit one more in his stack. And then the stack goes everywhere because he can't fit that one more. And yet mm. he does that multiple times. So he can't right. bear to leave this one piece of food behind despite already having quite a bit. So mm. much so that he's like risking his and Jacques' safety because they might get captured by Lucifer. Yeah. Yeah, so it's it's a very elaborate gag, all centering around the fact that Gus loves food and, of course, right. is overweight. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, I do. Will say that that was that scene was the first moment where I was impressed by the animation. Ooh, yeah. And there were a couple moments that, like, I thought the animation was stronger in this film than we had seen yet. So that mm. was kind of cool to, like, start to recognize those differences. Mm-hmm. But it was in the moment of Gus having that stack of corn, I guess, <laughs> under <laughs> his chin. And when he tries to fit the next one in, the one of them, like, explodes outward and his chin falls down Yeah, in, like, And that small movement was so realistic and so well-timed. And I could feel the, like, weight and pressure of, like, him exerting the force downward on the stack to, like, keep it in place. Yeah. It just felt really impressive and precise in a way that I hadn't noticed previously. I love that. Yeah, absolutely. I think you're so right. And especially because there are all these scenes throughout the movie of these little mice characters in frantic scenarios running from the cat or whatnot there was a lot of opportunity for disney to showcase their animation because Mm -hmm. you know just a lot of quick moving scenes and little details that really shine through and i think the big like the bigger thing that that also achieved in this film was like i actually found it funny (laughs) yeah i like was reflecting on the way that these gags have functioned in past films and they felt like they were sort of self-serving in like just a way to showcase what the animators can do Mm. and like look at all these ways that we can show humor and we can make things move in unusual ways and funny ways but they don't like fit with the plot like it's just kind of this distraction for a second Mm. it makes me think in particular of the there's a little scene with the baby duckling in Bambi Mm -hmm. where Bambi's jumping through the meadow and like it's just rained there's puddles all over the place and the duckling is like afraid to swim for the first time so we get this you know like probably like three minute segment of like this duckling like dipping its toes into the water and like trying to go out to swim and then eventually (laughs) Bambi shows up and like splashes the duckling and we move on right it was like why did we need this it was just sweet and pretty and a little bit funny Mm -hmm. but I didn't I didn't laugh at it when it happened like I could feel the film like wanting to create this moment Mm -hmm. versus in Cinderella 
all of those kind of sidetracky moments were actually like really silly and funny, particularly the one where Jacques and Gus are stealing the trimming for Cinderella's dress mm-hmm. and they got to get the the necklace with the beads on it. Right. That's a super like Tom and Jerry scene of yeah. Lucifer trying to catch them and funny things happening. And I thought that scene was really good and funny and engaging and I wanted to watch and it didn't just feel like a segment I had to get through like the pink elephants or like (laughs) something like that that's the extreme opposite so that was pretty cool that like things felt more linear and more like part of the narrative consistently and actually funny right and so I think you're highlighting two things that the animators have done better that the filmmakers are doing better not just the animation itself but also they're doing better construction of narratives so if the animals had gotten less screen time if their characters were less developed then that scene might feel like a gag you had to get through but because they dedicated sufficient time to the development of that narrative it felt really central yeah and the we do need the things that they are trying to get. So, like, we need those beads for the mm-hmm. story to continue. Right. So it fits in plot-wise rather than being a side anecdote. I also just, I love, I think possibly my favorite moment in the film is Jacques stringing the green beads onto Gus's tail. I know, it's so cute. <laughs> I don't know why that resonates so much, but it's like such a silly idea and it's so cute and... And yeah. also really clever. Like, yeah, oh, the is. string broke. What are you going to use? A tail, of course. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, uh, so clever. But yeah, so good job, Disney. You're yeah. getting funnier. <laughs> <laughs> so... We were kind of talking about gender roles, took a little diversion, but... Yeah, a little bit distracted. (laughs) By worthwhile things. Mm -hmm. But one of the major themes that we have to talk about is the patriarchy and domestication as significant forces or motifs in this film. Yes. And for me, this is mostly coming from Woods' piece again, Mm -hmm. but the way that those both the patriarchy and domestication acting as one unit but as kind of separate ideas exerting power through dreams Mm, and how mm -hmm. like dreaming is the thing that is controlled or is used as like uh, a reward and this thing to strive for Mm. but those dreams all fit in within the patriarchal system that already exists. Yeah, there is a great quote from Wood that I think speaks to exactly the point you're making. Wood wrote, quote, mirroring other aspects of American ideology, Disney Cinderella offers the quasi-religious reassurance that hard work, clean living, self-control, and adherence to the ideal will produce the desired result. In this Mm -hmm. case appropriate to the American dream for girls, rich and handsome Mr. Wright. And yes. So the dream is necessarily marriage and fulfillment of that dream is your reward for submission, adherence to patriarchal systems, which includes women doing domestic tasks. 
one of the things that struck me as well in thinking about Cinderella's dreams is that she doesn't express a wish to marry. She Mm. doesn't say, I want to meet the prince. Like that part of how her dream gets fulfilled Mm. isn't made obvious through her own perspective. She just consistently does not wish to be controlled or ordered around anymore. Hmm. And when this opportunity presents itself, she's super excited. So clearly this is a thing that she wants and like she falls in love with the prince immediately. So these are, (laughs) it's not like this is not the way she wanted to get it, but the film is saying you can have those things that you dreamed of through this particular route Mm. of marrying and being a good housekeeper who is dutiful and will eventually be rewarded through magic <laughs> of like getting to meet the prince. And then you will get your own home that you control as like the woman of the home. Like that is her domestic space that is hers, mm-hmm. I suppose, but through like keeping clean the way that you want to and when you want to, but it's still overly like ruled by a man. You still have to be married and, bear his children probably mm-hmm. and she doesn't take that into account she doesn't seem to dislike that part of her dream fulfillment it just gets her where she needs to go so the i feel like the film grabs different kinds of dreams these like vague dreams that young girls might have yeah and say that marriage is the route to having everything that you want mm. but also fitting within our existing society and system. Well, so I'm really reflecting here because as I was watching it, I was like, okay, yeah, great. Like her dream is to be a princess. Relatable. Uh, But (laughs) (laughs) what you're saying, or at least what I'm hearing in in what you're saying is that her dream is actually for power. She wants so. Yeah. She wants to be in a, in a situation where she's not forced into labor by her stepmother and stepsisters. Her dream is to be in a home where she's loved and respected and cared for, which mm-hmm. really, I mean, that that is truly relatable. <laughs> like that is <laughs> those are truly uh, I think, you know, maybe it's not very feminist of me to judge other people's desires or dreams, but those seem like much more positive things for a woman to be striving for or like much more progressive things for a woman to be striving for compared to just marriage to an eligible bachelor. Yes. Yeah, I agree. And I think that makes it all the more powerful the way that the film tells her to succeed Mm -hmm. in achieving those things. And like, if she does genuinely love the prince and he loves her and they have like a lovely home, that's obviously way better than what she came from. But the assumption is that she will still be performing the same tasks and having to be this good housekeeper, wife, mother. Yeah. And that's good enough for this Cinderella, but it's also good enough for the film. Like the film is like, you can have power as long as you exert it in these approved ways. Right. Absolutely. And, and not even like, it's not even like the film's giving permission. Like, okay, you can have power as long as it's in this domain. The film is assuming that that is the way she would want to assert power. 
right? It's mm-hmm. like, of course, like what else could you possibly be dreaming of? You know, mm-hmm. if the king has anything to do with it, it seems pretty likely that her future is going to involve childbearing and child rearing. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Those are his dreams, which like there are other characters in this film who dream. So the king is one of them. We see him act like we see into his dream of like playing horsey with his grandkids. Yeah. And then he's awoken from that dream by the grand duke. So we know what he dreams of and that that dream also fits well into the patriarchal system that already exists so he can achieve his dream too and mm-hmm. it will keep things moving and he's he's a good guy he has appropriate dreams so it all fits together yeah the characters who don't get to dream are like the bad guys or these other people who we're not supposed to like like lady tremaine or the Grand Duke, or the servants who we can like, but they don't have any power, like Gus and Jacques. So something that I think is really interesting is that, in a way, this is kind of a story about Cinderella's dreams being fulfilled, like we're talking about. But also, it's sort of a, a story about rivalry between women, in mm-hmm. a way that's very similar to what we saw in Snow White, with Snow White being pitted against the evil queen. Cinderella's pitted against Lady Tremaine and her stepsisters from the beginning. And I just think that's a really interesting motif to show because it promotes competitiveness between women mm-hmm. in, in a way that isn't necessary. Right. It's like a kind of a play on the myth of scarcity. Like there's not enough good men to go around. So you got to fight it out amongst yourselves. Mm -hmm. It's not possible that you can all have your dreams fulfilled in their own unique ways. Right. Uh, Only one person's going to come out the winner here. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It helps that we literally see one young man. Right. In, like the film. <laughs> right, exactly. Yeah. Like who else is at this ball? It's just the prince and then all of these women. <laughs> uh which, you know, I guess is the point. But <laughs> so it's it's yeah. kind of that classic struggle between good and evil, putting up this presumably false dichotomy of either or instead of saying like hey, is there a way that all of these characters could realize their respective dreams? Right. I mean, I know that's not the point, but... (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, no, that's a very different version of the story. (laughs) But it comes back to the, like, the morality thing that you were talking about earlier of, like, the characters who are good and kind and do their duty, because duty seems to all as well be very important in this film, Mm -hmm. versus those who are mean and unkind and also potentially didn't conform to society. So this harkens back to what we were talking about with Snow White, where like the evil queen is single and ready to mingle. We have a similar situation with Lady Tremaine. Yeah. Where she is a woman who is getting up in age based on her gray head of hair. Mm-hmm. And she's not married. She was, but she didn't get remarried. So she's this woman who has power 
over a household and is unkind in the way that she wields it against a younger, beautiful woman. Mm-hmm. <sighs> yeah, Lady Tremaine is is the worst, but I also find her pretty compelling. Me too. Me too. <laughs> and I think actually in our first episode, one of your trivia questions was mm-hmm. who does uh, Eleanor Audley voice? And the answer is Lady Tremaine and Maleficent. And her voice acting is just so spectacular. And the animation really aligns with that perfectly to make exactly mm-hmm. a very compelling villain who doesn't actually get that much screen time. Yeah. The point on the animation of her, I think is very true that I think her face is one of the most expressive mm. in the film to like show her, her evilness and like how angry she gets and how cruel she is based on the way that her face looks. And we get those two, well, one close up, but like two amazing uses of like shadow and the lime green yes. color with her that is completely ridiculous. Like <laughs> when you when you really look at it, because it's like, where is this shadow coming from? Right. So the first scene is after Gus is accidentally found in one of the stepdaughter's breakfasts, mm-hmm. and they scream and yell about how Cinderella should like be murdered basically or something. (laughs) Um, And Lady Tremaine calls her into her bedroom and there's this big shadow across the bed and she has these drapes over the top of the bed that Mm -hmm. make it look like darker. And she and Lucifer are in the bed and you see only their eyes as the like classic Disney lime green, Mm -hmm. which I think is starting now like this is the first time we're seeing that color yeah and it'll come up again at least in Sleeping Beauty if not in other places I'll be looking for it and then later when she figures out that Cinderella was the girl at the ball we get this really epic zoom in on her eyes Mm -hmm. and like she's in full regular lighting in the hallway and as the camera zooms in it just this huge shadow falls over her face and her eyes get that lime green color again and it's so creepy but I also really like it yeah absolutely (laughs) and something that I think makes her interesting is that unlike the evil queen that we saw in Snow White unlike Maleficent who we will see in Sleeping Beauty Lady Tremaine isn't magical right Mm, she's not going to these extreme lengths to murder Cinderella but her hatred and subjugation of Cinderella is very, she's like kind of the original mean girl, right? Like she's <laughs> not doing anything extraordinary. She is just ex- exerting subtle power over Cinderella in a way that is very every day. And to me, that's, you know, that yes. is almost more interesting to watch than an evil queen who's casting magic spells. Yeah, definitely. The subtlety of her power, I think, was something that I also found super compelling. And, like, it made me anxious because it felt the most real, I think, of almost anything in the film. Yeah. So the scene that spoke to me the most is when Lady Tremaine manipulates her stepdaughters into ripping Cinderella's dress apart. Yes. The... Like, the daughters are throwing a tantrum because they realize she's, like, beautifully dressed and 
technically has fulfilled all of the things she needed to come to the ball. And they're just freaking out in general. Like, you can't let her come. She can't come. But Lady Tremaine immediately notices that Cinderella's dress is made from the pieces of her daughter's dresses that they discarded. So she just, like, points that out. She's like, you know, I don't remember who she talks to first, but Anastasia, isn't that your sash? Mm -hmm. And it just... Like, it's the exact right thing to say to get both the daughters to, like, turn to her and realize the whole situation and tear her apart and ruin her dreams. But, like, Lady Tremaine doesn't lift a finger. And when it's basically over, she's like, that's enough, as though, like, she didn't orchestrate this whole thing. Mm -hmm. It's so manipulative in a way that makes me so mad because, like, (laughs) I've known people who can do that in a way that they hold power over others. Ah, but it was also so great. It was so well done. Yeah. Yeah. I think, again, like a credit to the filmmakers here that they could convey that sort of subtle villainy so effectively through like the animation that you were just describing, through the script, how they chose to tell that story and the dialogue they chose to use. So, yeah, kudos to them. Yeah. She's great. She's really well done. And Lucifer is like a great compliment. He is. Like, they go really well together in their horribleness. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, they do. But I was also interested in how the organization of the film and the narrative itself, like, pits the stepdaughters against Cinderella. Mm -hmm. And I think one of the most obvious ones is the Sing Sweet Nightingale scene Mm -hmm. where they aren't fighting with each other. It's just the way that the film is animated where we get the stepdaughters, well, one of them. I don't remember which one is singing and which one's playing. I could the never keep them straight. <laughs> Anastasia is the redhead. Okay. And, and Drizella is the, the other one. Okay. The other one. I think Anastasia was singing. So right. Anastasia's terrible. Like her singing voice is screechy and bad. And then we cut to Cinderella and she's, you know, scrubbing the floors downstairs, singing the same song absolutely beautifully in. Also, this the film additionally like makes it all the more apparent by having her sing harmony with herself. Yes, yeah. So you get the reflected Cinderellas in the soap bubbles around her, mm-hmm. and those Cinderellas appear to be singing with her. So you get her in like three part harmony. Yeah, and it's gorgeous. And so it just makes this like dichotomy between her and her sisters all the more apparent. Yeah, absolutely. Also, we had it backwards. Anastasia's playing the flute and Drizella singing. Really? Really, really. Just Googled mm, it. I, so the the person with red hair is playing the flute? Yeah. Man. <laughs> I know. <laughs> Isn't it funny? We oh, like well. just watched this and <laughs> can't even remember. I have one more like women beauty pitting against each other bit with the stepsisters in Cinderella. Yeah. Which is the the shoe trying on scene. Mm-hmm. The thing that most surprised me was when the Grand Duke sees Anastasia for the first time, mm-hmm. he flinches. Yep. And like that hadn't occurred yet. There hadn't been a like obvious ugliness like tag to actions and things. But this him flinching just at the way she looks is so, like, over the top, I felt, almost, and, like, the humor of it. It's very much like Brom Bones in Ichabod. Yes. Crane flinching at the woman 
that becomes his dance partner at the Halloween party. Yeah. Yeah. It's just too much. And for all the humor that I think they do really well, that scene obviously does not. (laughs) Yeah. Takes away. And, you know, it's supposed to be humorous that the stepsister's feet are so big. They can't fit in the shoe. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. The dichotomy between feet is actually like apparent multiple times in the film Mm -hmm. where also at the ball when the grand duke looks at her through his monocle it like kind of zooms in on her legs a little bit (laughs) yeah and then when she when cinderella comes down the like grand staircase to try on the slipper he does it again and like zooms in on her legs and her feet and it's like it's supposed to be cueing to us like oh this beautiful woman by like her legs. <laughs> it sounds um, like the Grand Duke might have a foot fetish. That's what I'm reading into this. It seems possible. <laughs> Did he volunteer for the job to fit the shoe? I mean, hey. <laughs> but also, Cinderella doesn't have toes. <laughs> I don't know if you yeah, noticed this. It's a Barbie foot. Yeah, but mm-hmm. the stepsisters do have toes. Well, toes so are if, gross. So Exactly. If you didn't know, toes are not beautiful. They're not beautiful. You can't beautiful. have toes if you want to be pretty. Well, okay, so this is interesting. I mentioned how the Cinderella story has origins in a Chinese folk tale. Oh. And that actually has been connected to the practice of foot binding hmm. in Chinese culture. Oh my gosh. It's a very easy jump to understand how this story would then like perpetuate and actually in the Brothers Grimm fairy tale, which is a little bit darker than the Peralt version, yeah, you know what I'm going to say, mm-hmm. the stepsisters mutilate their feet in an attempt yep. to get them to fit in the shoe. So yeah. it, so we see a couple possible connections to self-harm, self-mutilation in the service of meeting standards of beauty. Wow. That's fascinating. It might not even be that there's foot binding in the original Chinese story but like just the idea that like small feet are more desirable this story might be reflecting that specific beauty standard is like it you know the same way that the disney cinderella is reflecting small feet as being more beautiful so you know so the use of fairy tales to reinforce specific standards of beauty is what we're talking Mm -hmm. about Yeah. yeah are you ready to talk about true love I I would love to talk about true love, Rachel. Yeah. Yeah. Well, Cinderella finds it with Prince Charming. Yeah, she says so herself immediately after meeting him. <laughs> By the way, do we ever hear his name as Prince Charming? No, he's just the prince throughout the film. Right. I'm pretty sure. And that's also true of like Lady Tremaine just doesn't get referred to. Huh. I don't think in the third person at any point. Interesting. Yeah, so it's yeah. like, but, but, um, but that those are like known characters. Like I mm-hmm. know that Prince Charming is the prince from Cinderella. So it's just interesting to think about like how that gets translated into knowledge of popular culture, even though it's not explicit in the film itself. Yeah, I don't Side know note. when he got the charming added on. <laughs> I know that there are two more sequels. To Cinderella that Disney made. Yeah. And I think he becomes Prince Charming in the second one. Mm. But I don't know if the name 
originated before the film or not. If it was in the scripts. Yeah. Or like some other writings about it. Or maybe, yeah, it's probably in the script for the original Cinderella. And yeah. It just doesn't have to be said. Right. There's almost no dialogue exchanged between the two of them. Mm-hmm. They don't know each other's names, but nope. they are in love. She doesn't even know he's a prince. Right. Right. Well, I freaked out when she says that when like <laughs> she's like this, this man, I didn't even get a chance to meet the prince. And then she like runs away. And I'm like, how did did you look at him? Right. <laughs> like He's dressed in a very prince like attire. Yeah. He was literally greeting women like on a dais like two seconds before you showed up. You didn't notice any of that before he like ran out to meet her. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I kind of think that that point was. Very intentional and important because that tells us that she's not just in it for the money and the power, right? Mm, she loves him for him. Yes. Without knowing anything about his like status. That's what sets her apart, presumably from all the other eligible maidens who came here to meet the prince in right. hopes of becoming a princess. Right. Though... He clearly makes his choice upon appearance alone because he rushes out of the room to like go meet her from just seeing her in her like sparkly gown. Oh, yeah. Like a hundred yards away. Arguably, they both make their choice on appearance alone, but it's somehow to her credit, like that's apparently better than making the choice just because she knows he's the prince. Yes. Yeah. It gives her that little bit of like... She's not a gold digger. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> like. <laughs> right. Right. Mm-hmm. So something else that's interesting about their scene when they're meeting and in love is how they part. So like you said, she's like, oh, I have to meet the prince. Right. And Prince Charming says, wait, you can't go now. And he is like holding her and like mm-hmm. almost restraining her. And that was actually something that a couple other scholars highlighted. Hofstad, Hubka, and Tonmer in their 2009 study, they looked at what they're calling unwanted physical contact in Disney movies. And they highlighted that point that she is pretty desperately trying to get away and he is physically restraining her from doing so. Mm-hmm. Not a great depiction of a respectful caring consensual interaction yep yeah I also reacted strongly when I saw him grab her arm and I don't remember if it's like the animation that makes it I mean obviously it's the animation because the film is animated (laughs) I don't know if like his grip like makes indents in her skin or if like it's how hard she stopped by him but you could tell that it was like powerful like it was not him like lightly tugging or like grazing her arm like it's a grip yeah they again like in them becoming very good at animating they made that that action really clear and how he stops her and that made it much more shocking to me and like no please don't touch her no touching (laughs) yeah she is trying to get away from you you let go Mm -hmm. now that's how this works Yeah, so that was not great. Uh, mm-hmm. And yet that does not seem to mitigate her very strong and sudden feelings for him whatsoever. So right. it, it's kind of this interesting thing of like, 
oh, is it acceptable somehow because it was in this fit of passion and in service of their ability to continue being together and Cinderella also wants that? Or is it just problematic because it's unwanted and unconsensual physical contact? Right. I mean, I think the film would obviously argue that, like, his true love has just arrived and suddenly she's leaving and he can't let that happen because he needs to control this situation and she will be his in, like, a possessive way. So, like, of course he can try to stop her in whatever way is possible. And, in fact, if he didn't, then how would we know it was true love? Right. Mm-hmm. If he was, res- how would we know he cares? Exactly. If he was yeah. respectful of her boundaries, then that wouldn't be the depiction of true love that we've come to expect. Yep. Where it's passionate and forceful. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And between complete strangers. <laughs> <laughs> Do you not believe in love at first sight, Aaron? Mm. I mean, it could grow up into love. Yeah. that happened to begin at first sight. <laughs> right. But I don't think you knew. I definitely believe in physical attraction at first sight, right? right. That's pretty believable, but yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, so so it is interesting to think about the message that that's putting out there in terms of what love is, how one comes to be in love, and what a relationship looks like right? Mm -hmm. The only trial that they have to go through in their relationship has to do with finding each other again, right? There's no trial related to the dynamics of the relationship itself or anything that we would expect in some realistic portrayal of a romantic relationship. But, you know, then it wouldn't be a fairy tale, I guess. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> then they get to go on to live happily ever after. And uh, right. It says they lived happily ever after. So yeah. what do we have to worry about? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> All right. I would love to talk about the slight religious aspects of this film that I think are small but powerful. <laughs> <laughs> Tell me more. <laughs> so... The initial thing is like how often miracles come up or the idea of a miracle. Mm-hmm. And I don't know that miracles are inherently religious necessarily. Yeah, the idea of a miracle. It's maybe like a more secularized idea of the same sort of dream or wish fulfillment. But miracle right. is a religious term. Right. Exactly. And I think paired with the other instances of like this Christian religion kind of seeping into the narrative, it becomes more apparent. So the first one that really struck me is when the fairy godmother appears Mm. and Cinderella is like, nothing can be done. Everything is ruined. And the fairy godmother says, if you'd lost all your faith, I wouldn't be here. And Mm. here I am. Mm. So that idea that like, like faith in itself, again, is not a word that is particularly religious necessarily. You can have faith in things other than God. Mm-hmm. But the way that even like would characterize the patriarchy and the system and the way that you're fulfilling duty in kind of religious terms fits in here because it's she has had faith that if she continues to be a good worker, to do her duty, to be kind and follows through with that faith, eventually she will be rewarded. Mm -hmm. And the fairy godmother appearing in a 
essentially what is a miracle in a very angelic fashion in the same way that kind mm. of the blue fairy appears yeah. in Pinocchio evokes that same sort of feeling that you will be rewarded by a higher power. Right. Because we only see magic here. We don't hear anything about God. But then in the song, So This Is Love, the like first really obvious connection is that they sing, the key to all heaven is mine. Right, right. And it's like, if you've been subtle about it before, I'm taking this mention of heaven and I am applying it to everything I've heard. Yeah. Because it's not like they tried to stay secular consistently throughout the whole film. Mm-hmm. And then also the the fairy godmother says, even miracles take a little time. Hmm. So again, this fitting together of like, if you're good and faithful and patient, mm-hmm. eventually you will get your due. But like you can never do anything to make that thing happen because you just have to be patient mm-hmm. because miracle, even miracles take time. Well, I'm like, okay, how long? <laughs> and I mean, if we were to like draw that out all the way, it's like, okay, you work hard and you're patient. And when you die, you go to heaven. You are exactly. given the ultimate reward. Yeah. Interesting. Yep. I mm-hmm. didn't pick up on any of that. So I'm glad you brought that up. Yeah, just had to get that out there. Always got to get the little religious bits because yeah. I think it's fascinating to see how those little bits that probably weren't even intentional necessarily, how mm-hmm. they seep into everything just because of the perspective of the creators. Yeah, totally. It's cool. Is it time for Aaron's extras? boop a doop a doop a doop a pow One day I'll get a real theme song. I love it. I love the one that we have created. <laughs> yes, it is. I'd like to begin Aaron's extras by just asking you how you interpreted some things. Excellent. So the first one, which I think has come up in like people critiquing Cinderella in general, is the fact that the slipper doesn't disappear. Neither of the slippers disappear. Oh, So people a lot of the time are like, how convenient that the slipper is still there so she can try it on. Like, shouldn't it have disappeared with all of the other magic stuff Mm -hmm. at midnight? But we do have that scene after the carriage has disappeared and they're in the bushes hiding where Cinderella discovers she still has the slipper and she looks up at the sky Maybe at heaven. Where the angels are. Right. And thanks the fairy godmother. Yeah. How did you interpret that keeping of the slipper and maybe the thanking? So I interpreted it as the fairy godmother has somehow, is somehow omniscient and has sort of helped to orchestrate this entire thing. So, you know, whether that was all predetermined or whether the fairy godmother is watching over Cinderella and sees that she left one shoe and so realizes she might need the other one and decides not to have those dissolve. Yeah, it didn't just seem like, oops, the magic didn't work exactly right. (laughs) It like felt very intentional and like some exercise of agency on the godmother's part. What does the fairy godmother want by leaving the shoe do you think she wants cinderella to end up with the prince okay so you believe that this is her orchestrating the 
happily ever after. Their reunification. Yeah. Interesting. I Because I basically brought it down to, like, there are two, I think, potential readings. And, like, both can be true. Right. But one is what you're saying, that, like, she's... She's still manipulating the situation. She's trying to get Cinderella her happily ever after. Or that the slippers are just meant as like a keepsake, a memory, a gift for her to remember this wonderful evening she had Mm -hmm. and go on with her life. And I think in my watching of it, the, the keepsake felt more like accurate to how the fairy godmother had acted with Cinderella and such, but the orchestrating the ending makes much more sense for like the overall narrative of the film. I definitely think my interpretation involves quite a few leaps in logic and assumptions, (laughs) right? Because yeah, the idea that it was just left behind as a keepsake, I agree, makes more sense and aligns with how the fairy godmother was approaching the whole situation to begin with. But then again, she's saying miracles take time. So maybe that's some sort of foreshadowing to like, you're not going to leave the ball and have everything work out. There's still going to be a couple more hurdles to jump through before you can realize your dream. Right. Yeah, I could see that too. All right. Cool. Thanks. (laughs) (laughs) Happy to help. I also just want to bring up the scary dark rider people that the Grand Duke sends after Cinderella. Right? That's pretty terrifying. Yeah, I don't have anything to, like, say, but, like, why? Right. And they're so scary, and they're just, like, black silhouettes with red eyes. (laughs) Are they going to arrest her? Like, what exactly is happening? Yeah. yeah. Why are they so scary if, hypothetically, they'd be bringing her back to her happily ever after? Well, I think they are scary because this means Cinderella's going to get caught in... Mm, her rags. Right. Get caught in what is sort of a lie, I guess. Mm. Oh, interesting. That's another level of, like, it being part of this whole morality right? thing. Yeah. But then, you know, ultimately, it seems like it doesn't matter that she's a servant, right? The shoe fits. She gets the prince. She tries on the shoe when she's in her rags. I wonder if that would change if the prince was the one doing the fitting. Because I feel like in more modern interpretations of Cinderella, you often see the prince as the one going like door to door Mm. or like he's in the carriage while like a footman comes in and does it or something, but he's like seeing sort of the situation. So he gets to see her as she is and still Mm. decide to marry her. How kind of him. (laughs) (laughs) But in this situation, the grand Duke is like, I just got to find this girl. Like I got to find this girl or I'm literally going to be beheaded. by the king. (laughs) Well, it is kind of interesting though, because right. If we, Rewind a little bit and we think about Cinderella's desperation to get away by midnight. Like, what is Mm. she so afraid of? If she is truly in love with this person, if this is really true love, why would she be afraid of him seeing her in her regular clothes? Mm. You know, but she is frantic. She cannot let that happen. Maybe it's part of like not dreaming too big. Like, it's another way of controlling her and women like her that, like, you got this fun experience. This is your reward for a lifetime of hard work. You should be happy with that. 
Yeah, and it's done by midnight. Follow the rules, Mm -hmm. you know? It's all about staying with the orders that she's been given and come home and continue to live that life, but with the knowledge that you had this one magical experience. Yeah. And then maybe because she does that, because she continues to follow the rules, she does get to end up Hmm. with her happily ever after. Yeah. Hmm. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know what we're trying to take from that. Yeah. I mean, I also assume the prejudice against a servant might stop the prince from wanting to be with her in like the initial anger of it or something. But once he's had time to really know that like it's been 10 hours, I still love her. Right. (laughs) (laughs) Right. Uh, Yeah. All right. All right. Interesting. 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 What other extras you got? So Lucifer dies? (laughs) Yeah. I mean, there's a question mark there, but it's a pretty Mm -hmm. tall tower. Yep. I mean, there's nothing to catch him. Cats land on their feet. And if they don't, they have nine lives. (laughs) Presumably Lucifer would have at least nine. I mean, I hope so. I don't want a kitty to die, even if he's a mean kitty. So I'm thinking Lucifer dies. (laughs) One, because of like the physics, obviously, of like falling out of a tower that tall. Right. But also because Bruno dreams, if you remember. Oh. So in the, the scene where Cinderella is doing like the morning breakfast and stuff, Bruno is having a dream. About chasing and, and catching Lucifer. Yeah, exactly. Cinderella like asks Bruno, did you catch him this time? And Bruno's like, yeah. And then she's like, well, you better stop having dreams like that. Like, you better learn to like cats because this is the world that we live in. And you know what those ladies upstairs would say. Mm. And then like to subvert things or to have people achieve their dreams and leave their circumstances behind is like the whole theme of the movie. So Bruno, as a dreamer, gets to achieve his dream as well of catching and killing Lucifer. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it does seem like it's maybe... Well, it's obviously intentionally ambiguous, right? Because it's not like Bruno catches Lucifer and, like, kills him and eats him in front of us. (laughs) So, I mean, that would be, that would be, I'm guessing that would be, like, the ultimate fulfillment of Bruno's dream. Because I'm guessing his dream isn't just that he chases Lucifer out a window. But who knows? That's true. I can't speak for Bruno. Right. Anyway, I was very shocked that Lucifer fell out of the tower at the end. <laughs> Did not remember that at all. I know. Yeah. Yeah. We either. Poor Lucifer. On to Aaron's normal extras of sorts. Okay. Got two more interesting bits of information about the film. So by 1950, when Cinderella came out, the quote, nine old men of Disney and Disney's animation board had been established, which is like this group of animators and writers and directors who were the like powerhouses of Disney creation at this time. Hmm. So because they're like well-known and referenced in 
film history, I think it is well worth us at least discussing them so that we know that they exist. Interesting to think about the nine old men being responsible for this story about young women's (laughs) dreams, right? Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. As well as most films between 1937 and 1960-something. Yeah. Huh. (laughs) They were in charge for a long time and didn't all work on everything, but they were around. Yeah. Yeah. It's just these nine... Guys, I mean, I think it was pretty much all guys anyway. They just get to be the most powerful in the Disney Corporation. Mm -hmm. So they were named the Nine Old Men after a phrase that FDR had used to make fun of the members of the Supreme Court. Even though the Nine Old Men of Disney were actually like in their 30s-ish at the time. Okay. These nine men were Les Clark, Mark Davis, Ollie Johnston, Milt Call, Walt Kimball, Eric Larson... John Lonsbury, Frank Thomas, and Wolfgang Reitherman. Okay. They often split to work on different projects, but they all worked on Snow White, Pinocchio, Ichabod and Mr. Toad, Cinderella, Alice in Wonderland, and Peter Pan. Eric Larson was the last of the nine old men to work for Disney, and he retired in 1986. Holy cow. All of the nine old men are now deceased. Okay. So a quick history of these guys, because their names will likely come up again, though we're getting to the end of their consistent tenure, all nine of them. Hmm. And then other interesting thing was that this film marked the launching of the Walt Disney Music Company. Oh. Which is pretty neat, because prior to this film, Disney had been licensing the music publishing rights to a Ah. company called Born Co. Music, so that they could publish the songs on records Hmm. and such. So Disney wasn't doing it themselves and they were only getting the money through licensing. Mm. But this was the first film that they established their own company so they could publish and sell the soundtrack. And the children's album, which had four songs on it for this film, sold 750,000 copies during its first release and hit number one on the Billboard pop charts. Wow. (laughs) That's impressive, but... Then again, I guess it's not like people could buy the movie. So buying the record was the closest thing. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And Mm. it was a lot of money. Like they made a bunch of money that they hadn't been getting a full portion of before this point. So another way that Disney was able to like financially save themselves was getting into the publishing of their soundtracks. Okay. Interesting. And obviously they were only doing voiced songs they would later move into like the actual musical soundtrack in mm. the background as well okay mm-hmm. mm. yeah that's what i got for you great extras thanks <laughs> so the time has come for us to mm. assign grades to Indeed. cinderella what grade would you give as a representative of 1950 audience members this is an easy one they loved it it was great it's an A plus. Wow. It's just, an A yeah. plus. Okay. An A plus for sure. Now just how do you to double think check our modern? Well, so wait, before before we get mm. to the modern one, so the only other movie that you have given an A plus is Snow White. Mm-hmm. So I think it had a similar similar reaction. It wasn't quite as like ingenious in how new Snow White was, but it's the perfect movie. Yeah. <laughs> like they loved it. Yeah, that I mean that makes sense. That's it's interesting. I'll be curious to see if the princess movies continue mm, earning yeah. A pluses as we go forth. 
Oh, yeah, that would be, I mean, we are tracking it, so that will be interesting to see <laughs> if that's like a link of the princesses being fan favorites. Right. Okay. Modern audiences with their critical hats on. What do they think? So I will say that upon immediately finishing my 2020 viewing experience, I was not feeling very favorable about this. Oh, interesting. Yeah, I realized we didn't actually talk about how we felt. Like we how we feel about particular things came up. But like, yeah, I liked it. <laughs> you liked it. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> Mostly. I mean, it obviously has all the problems we've talked about for the last two hours or whatever. But somehow the problems, I think maybe, okay, with the exception of Cinderella's relationship with the mice, I Mm. think I was really aware already of the problems that it would have in terms of Mm -hmm. gender roles and so forth. And so those felt more forgivable. And Mm. more like a product of their time and okay. But I just didn't enjoy it as much as I thought I would because I felt so darn anxious about those cat and mouse scenes, (laughs) which clearly I have a problem with anxiety. We know this. But, uh, (laughs) But I have to step back and know that I'm representing, you know, beyond just myself but uh, you know and the music is lovely like you said the animation is really strong I think the storytelling is really strong so I think I would give it a b plus great that's where my brain was going to okay I'm so glad we agree yes it sounded like we might have had to like fight a little bit for the first time (laughs) I know I mean I think I am definitely forgiving this story more than others but maybe it's just because it's like a linear narrative goodness gracious how nice that is right (laughs) there's no like ridiculous nonsense about being trapped in a whale's stomach (laughs) or like whatever so yeah I agree completely (laughs) so next time will be our 10th episode yeah is this our anniversary? It's our anniversary. It feels like it's been so many more than that. <laughs> it's just that we're dead. But it is exciting and we should celebrate. We will be discussing Alice in Wonderland. That's the title theme. Like, that was amazing. <laughs> oh, thank you. Yeah, I just, I made that up. So it's wow. coincidence. So beautiful. It matched. Ugh. We're gonna. I am not an Alice in Wonderland person. Yeah, just like prepping everyone for it ahead of time. So we'll see how this one goes. Yeah, yeah. yeah it'll be an interesting one. I'll try to be objective, like a good <laughs> podcast reviewer. <laughs> it's okay if you're not too. Objectivity <laughs> is a myth. So, <laughs> so we would love to hear what you think dear listeners our parents usually text us to let us know what they think but if you (laughs) hi dad but uh you don't have our phone numbers so instead you should email us at hello deconstructing disney at gmail.com or follow us on twitter at decon disney and please give us a rating or review and subscribe on apple podcasts and until next time TTFN. Ta-ta for now.